Well, I want to begin uh, the, our time together with a sea story. I love sea stories, uh, as you probably know. Um, <laughs> in the summer of 1996, I was just entering into my third year in the Coast Guard, and I got transferred from a unit in Seattle to a unit in Port Angeles, Washington. And this new assignment was a 110-foot uh, patrol boat or, or Coast Guard cutter, and uh, I. I Initially, I was an engineer on that ship and the auxiliary engineer, and then uh, a year into it, I got uh, promoted and I was the main propulsion engineer. I was in charge of the engines and stuff like that. And I knew this ship inside and out after being on it and having to fix all the little leak. I knew every leak. I knew every little nuance of how this thing would work, kind of like Chewbacca on the Millennium Falcon or something like that. I knew that this thing is you know, 110 feet long. It had two Axman Valenta V16 engines that put out 2,880 horsepower each. Goes over 30 plus knots. It's rated for 50 foot seas and 90 knot winds. I knew all of this about my ship on paper. I trained with my crew on basic missions of search and rescue, law enforcement, all that kind of stuff. So I had a certain degree of faith in my crew my shipmates, and in this vessel that I was putting my blood, sweat, and tears into, getting bloody knuckles, turning wrenches, all that kind of thing. But my faith was tested on a dark winter night when we were on patrol. The winds were really picking up, huge storm warning off the Pacific coast, so we ducked into Nia Bay. You guys know where Nia Bay is, right? It's a little protected bay right before the Strait of Juan de Fuca meets up with the Pacific Ocean. So we're there on a mooring ball, and uh, the ship is sitting there straight as an arrow because the wind is blowing so hard. Within Nia Bay, sheltered bay, the winds were gusting, starting of 30 knots. Then gale force, way over gale force comes up. It was then gusting over 50 knots at times, which is just about, just barely 60 miles an hour. So I thought, oh, well, at least we're here in this, in this bay, anchored up to a mooring ball, and uh, we'll just ride it out. Then we got a call right before midnight that off of the coast of Washington near Quileute River, there was a sailboat in distress. A Coast Guard helicopter had been deployed from Port Angeles, a surf boat from Station Quileute River, and us. So we round the corner coming out of Nia Bay, and what meets us in the dark, in the black, but consistent 20-plus foot seas with 30-foot uh, waves every once in a while in the set. On top of these 30-foot waves are just frothing, frothing white foam from the wind billowing up, splashing over us. It looked like just little mountains of blackness in the, in the darkness. I'd never been so terrified. thought I was confident in my ship and in my shipmates, but I didn't really know. I hadn't really been tested in that kind of weather. So I go up to the bridge to give a report to the captain on how our engine room is working. And the bridge stands 21 feet above the water line. So occasionally we're seeing waves that are over 10 feet above the bridge height. And I was terrified. And the people around me were terrified. And we were all sick. Except for one guy. The guy at the rudder. I was 21 years old at the time. He had more sea time than I had lifetime. He was what you call salty. And when I looked at his face, he was definitely concerned. He was definitely concentrating. He wasn't just winging it, but he wasn't terrified. And I took great comfort in that. 
And I began to not be as afraid. In fact, I knew when I saw his face, we're going to be okay. This is going to suck, but we're going to be okay. This evening we're going to look at a sea story. The story takes place on the sea. It involves a boat and terrified people in the boat. And it's all about how Jesus' presence makes all the difference in the heart of a storm. Would you stand with me as we read Matthew 14, verses 23, or 22 through 33. So this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. And it says, Immediately... He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! They cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly the Son of God. Oh Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for this picture, this image. Because whether or not we've ever been in a boat... We can certainly imagine our lives tossed to and fro by the waves of distress and stress and suffering. And we know in our heads, and we've heard this story before, that you are the Lord who is in the boat with us. You are the Lord who calms oceans, and yet our lives still seem frothy with waves splashing over us. We can barely catch our breath sometimes. So I pray by the power of your Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would be present with us in such a way that we know it, that it makes a difference. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. He may be seated. <laughs> there are a few things, in my humble opinion, as compelling as a good sea story. Now, obviously, I'm biased on that, but just hear me out. I mean, when you think about it, before the space age, which is less than 100 years old, the last final frontier has always been the ocean. Maybe a desert crossing, maybe the poles. Sure, it's the ocean. It's the ocean that captivates the hearts of poets, that explores, that just calls them out. As technology even began to increase and domestication increases in the, the, the 17th century and 18th century, people begin to get more urbanized. Technology made life more predictable, stable, boring, and myopic. People took to the sea with new gusto to find new exploration. The sea is unpredictable. It is mysterious. And even in today's technological age, the most advanced, most massive ships you can think of, every year they, 
There are ships that sink on the sea because of incredible storms or unexplainable phenomena. In our story, Jesus and his disciples are by the sea. Jesus has performed the mighty deed of feeding 5,000 people plus with only five loaves and two fish. Plus, everyone was so satisfied that there was leftovers, 12 baskets overflowing. Now what motivated Jesus to get out in the wilderness in the first place is grief. I don't know if you'd thought about that. Before that feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' cousin John was executed. Unjustly. Horribly. Jesus is in mourning, I believe, goes out because it says he wants to be alone, and the crowd comes. And just as a side point, we talked about this in our Bible study on Wednesday, think of what kind of character Jesus has when he's in mourning, he wants to be by himself, he sees a massive crowd come, he could have done so many things, he could have gone Jesus' cloaking device, he could have gone... Uh, he could have made them blind. He could have made them not hungry. He could have made all sorts of things happen. But Jesus literally has compassion on them. And in his weak moment, he shows what his true character is. And he shows himself to be the one who cares deeply for others. Anyway, Jesus feeds the 5,000, sends his disciples, gives them a mission. He says, I want you to get in this boat. And it says... He implored them. He commanded them, go across the sea, I'll meet you over there. I need some time alone. He sends the crowds away. He goes up to the mountain to pray. And at this point, it's already getting dark, and he sees out that the boat is out in the water. It's out away, several stadia. Stadia is 600 feet, roughly. And so he, it's out way offshore. And it describes this boat as being battered by the waves. Now what's interesting about this term, battered by the waves, is in the Greek, it is the same word that means tormented or tortured. That is exactly the same term that is used when a demon torments or tortures a person. So here's Jesus' disciples whom he sent across the water. He looked out from his place of prayer and he sees their boat, literally them inside this thing, being tormented and tortured by the weather, by the waves. And this is where our sea story begins. And as we enter the story, I want us to consider two readings. First, we're going to read this story as it's given to us by Matthew, because that's how you properly handle Scripture. And at the, it, it, so we're going we're to look at the story as it happens in Jesus' life and in the order that it's happened in the Scripture. What is this story telling us about Jesus? That's the question we need to ask, because Matthew put it there for a reason. So that's number one approach. Number two, we're going to ask that in light of what we learn from question one, Okay, so what does the story tell us about Jesus? The second question we're going to ask, or the second reading is, why on earth does that matter to you and me? What we learn about Jesus, and who cares, if you want to put it that way in your notes. Okay, so what does the story tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us a lot, actually, but it doesn't tell us a lot in a list form. It doesn't tell us a lot in a systematic theology. It doesn't give us bullet points about Jesus' character attributes. In fact, the story acts as kind of a real-life parable. Think back just a chapter. In chapter 13, Jesus was telling all sorts of parables. And a parable is a story, usually it's a made-up story, and it's, it's a story that Jesus tells to make a point. And he's trying to tell us in chapter 13 things about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, things about the nature of the king of the kingdom himself, right? So he's telling us stories. I think what's going on now in chapter 14 is Jesus is living a parable. 
You've got to ask yourself, why does Jesus do things this way? We, we talked about that last week, about all the ways he could have fed the 5,000 people. He could have snapped his fingers as Jesus and made them not hungry anymore. And certainly as Jesus, he could have just like from the shore said, waves, be still. Or he could have like done some cool teleport thing. Or, I don't know, he could have done a lot of things, but to come walking on the waves, ah, what's going on here? Okay, so let's look at this. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came walking to them on the sea. How many of you heard this story before? Read it before? Heard it before? Okay, a lot of you. Most of you. What does your mind do right there when it says that Jesus came walking to them in the night on the water? Think about this for a minute. In fact, if you're brave, close your eyes and you're in this boat and you're being tormented in the storm, like just you're bruised because you keep hitting up on your, your arms against the hard side of the boat because it keeps jerking you, and your buddies are all in your face because there's like at least 11 of you in this boat. We don't know if some of the women might have been with them. And you're, I mean, taste the salt and feel the spray of the waves. And maybe once in a while, just when you were inhaling, a wave catches you in the face and you, <coughs> you cough, that salty stinging burning on the back of your throat and it's dark it's so dark in fact it's been one heck of a long night because it's the fourth watch of the night right now which is that time period those three hours between 6 or 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. right before the breaking of the dawn you are exhausted straining at the oars probably raining it's probably cold and you can hardly hear because of the howling wind you are so physically depleted and you see a man walking towards you on the waves. Okay, what I want you to do is get in a group of one, or I mean two or three, you can't be a group of one, get in a group of two or three and talk about how you would make this look if you're a filmmaker. How would you depict this scene? Think about things like this. Let's just pretend the waves are on the Sea of Galilee six to eight feet. Okay, so this high. Does Jesus walk up the waves and down the waves? Does he float above the waves? Does he do the waves just part for him? Is he on a surfboard? I mean, how does this look in your film? Take just a few minutes. Get this mental picture. Yeah. Like that. Okay. So let's let's take a look at what the disciples thought when they saw Jesus. They were absolutely terrified because they thought he was a ghost. Alright? Now, let's let's talk about water for a minute. Water in the ancient world was water. Uh, I would say it was just H2O, but they didn't really know about molecules. But water was just water. You drank it. You bathed in it. You could go swimming with it. I mean, people had fun back then. And uh, sometimes you could bless it and it would be used for rituals and things like that. But water is just water. But Jesus didn't just walk on the water. There's a different word for that in our story. He walked on the sea. And the sea in the ancient world was a very different thing than just water. The sea was filled with foreboding. In fact, there are three things, three areas. The sea, the desert, 
and mountains were fearful to people because they believed that demonic spirits sometimes roamed those places. And in pagan cultures, the, there was always a god attributed to the sea. And in most pagan cultures, it was, if not the most powerful god, one of the most powerful gods. So in Greece, you have Poseidon, Rome, Neptune. In the Semitic peoples outside of Judaism, you had Tiamat. Tiamat was this fearful god, and, and, the, and the, the state of the sea would tell people, supposedly, what the god's mood was like. So if it was a calm day, oh, the god must be happy. And if it was a sea like this, oh my goodness, the god must be very, very angry. And there was always this sense that the sea just loved to eat people up who could bring you down directly to Sheol. So some people in pagan cultures would have little uh, medallions or little statues in their boat. They would make a sacrifice before. They would try and do anything they could to appease the God to have safe passage on the boat. As Jews, Jesus' disciples believed in the one true God, Yahweh, who was above any other gods, if there were even other gods. And yet, they're people living in a superstitious world where myths and legends made it into everyday conversation, even for Jewish people. They may not have believed them if they were in their bar mitzvah and on their theological, you know, test or whatever. Like, uh, yeah, they don't believe in these other things. But it's the same thing as I was thinking about this with our small group. Like, I don't really have a problem. I don't really believe in ghosts or evil, evil spirits being able to attack me. Um, because, you know, just read Ephesians. And we, when we read that book together, we saw how Christ is above all of those things. It says, do not fear these evil powers. And yet, I will admit that... I have been in a graveyard at 2 in the morning when I was a teenager just doing stupid things. Capture the flag and stuff like that. And it's a little creepy when you realize all my friends are gone and I'm hiding behind a tombstone by myself. I don't know what that is. It's probably just superstition. It's probably just a lot of urban legend. But there's a little creepiness. And so I wonder if that some of that creeped into the disciples. Here they are on the boat and they see a figure walking. And it's like, what could this be? Maybe a ghost. Because ancient Mediterranean people believed... That if someone drowned at sea, sometimes their spirit would roam the top of the water. Isn't that interesting? Now, of course, they were wrong about that. But what does it mean that Jesus walked on the sea? What if Jesus was trying to tell us something about who he really is by walking on the sea? After all, in the Hebrew scriptures, who is it that treads on the sea? No human being treads on the sea. It is Yahweh and Yahweh alone, the living God, the Creator God, who walks on the sea. Uh, an example would be Job 9.8, where Yahweh Himself walks upon the sea. And it's, it's important that Yahweh and Jesus do this walking on the sea, because what that proves is, they are treading on the territory. They are in control. They are over the territory of any other foreign god. So if there's ever any doubt about who's who, God is God. So Jesus comes walking on the sea. When does he do that, by the way? What does it say in this? Fourth watch. That's right. In, Judah, in Judaism, there's three watches of the night, but they had adopted at this time the Roman system, so there's four watches. Uh, the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's that transition period. The end of the night, if you had to stand a uh, watch all night, you'd be the tiredest at this point. It would be the darkest mentally, physically. It's right before the breaking of the dawn. Now, find, this is really interesting. If we look at our Old Testament, 
That is when Yahweh often, often, often rescues people in the fourth watch of the night. When the night is darkest, when the stakes are stacked against you, when it has been a long time in waiting, when hope is running out, that's when God intervenes. Exodus 14.24 is when it's in the fourth watch, it's right before the breaking in of the dawn that Yahweh comes and rescues the people from the Egyptians. In Psalm 46.5, God's rescue comes as morning dawns. And Tolkien is no fool. This is picked up in two areas, at least that I can think of in the films. This is not a spoiler alert. You should have seen The Hobbit by now if you haven't, so it's your fault. But anyway, so in the, in the film rendition of The Hobbit where the, the, the cave trolls, you know, the mountain trolls have, have the, the dwarves and Bilbo, when Gandalf stands on the stone and right at that, as the end of the fourth watch is ended and dawn breaks, he smashes the stone and the light comes, right? Turns the trolls to stone. Oh, but then the most famous scene, my favorite, in the two towers, Gandalf leaves them at Helm's Deep, says, you've got to hold Helm's Deep, and right as Aragorn and, and Theoden King, they are, they're going to go out to, in the vanguard to make their final, probably suicidal thrust against the Orakai, right? That all is almost lost. He says, look to me on the fifth day at dawn on the east. There I will be. And sure enough, as night turns to day and the dawn, there comes Gandalf riding with the riders of Rohan. Oh! Okay, movie night at my house after this. We've got to watch it. So, anyway, but they're picking up on this theme that God rescues right in the darkest time, right before the dawn breaks in. So you've got a story, a sea story of Jesus walking on the sea, something only God can do, in the fourth watch of the night when God most often acts, and He approaches His disciples. He sees them terrified at His presence, and He says something that only God says. Take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. In, in your Bible, it might say, Take courage, it is I. That's because English translators oftentimes try and take a wooden Greek word. Now, that doesn't make sense to say I am, so I will make something more Englishy. Uh, but literally, it's ego eimi in the Greek, which is the way uh, of saying I am. Who says I am? Yahweh. When he reveals himself to Moses in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, who should I say to this Pharaoh who sent me? And God says to Moses, you tell him, I am who I am sent you. This is exactly the way Jesus describes himself to the disciples as he walks to them on the storm. Emma Wilson just did a wonderful job reading Psalm 107. In that psalm, the reason I asked her to read those sections is this. God himself, in that psalm, is described as the one who feeds hungry crowds in the wilderness, who delivers those who are distressed and tormented, and he calms the storm of the sea. What is Jesus saying about himself through these actions? Who is Jesus? Just ask the disciples. Because when he comes in the boat, they bow before him and say, Certainly, this is the Son of God. First reading, we just got through it, good job. The first reading lets us know that Jesus does this living parable to tell us that he is more than just a man, more than just a miracle worker. He is implying that he is indeed the Son of the Living God. So, in light of that, 
So what? What is the good news of this story? What might it have to ask of us, either to believe or to live out? Well, I consider this very good news because it's yet another instance of evidence that when we obey Jesus, He is with us. I've heard this passage taught on numerous times. Many, many wonderful sermons come out of this. And if I were to preach this four weeks in a row, you would, I would have four different takes that would all be biblical. But most often, I hear people emphasize Peter as the one who got out of the boat, right? you got to get out of the boat. I think there's books written on that, like get out of the boat kind of thing. And Peter is lifted up as this exemplar of faith. But I don't want to overlook the fact that all the disciples are being obedient to Jesus. He told them to get in the boat, to go to the other side. And when this storm is kicking up, there's nothing in the story about, and they were frightened and they turned back. Or they were frightened and they started heading to the nearest point of land. That's what smart people do. Obedient people listen to Jesus and follow through on what He's saying. So here's all these obedient disciples still in the boat in the storm-tossed sea and they're headed to where they're going. Don't, don't, don't lose sight of that. I think that's important because to some degree, this story is very much about the church as a whole. After all, those disciples in that boat, those obedient disciples, would be the core of that fledgling church when Jesus ascended. In Christian art, the church is often depicted as a boat or an ark. Uh, it's like that because Noah's ark protected Noah and his family from the raging chaos of judgment, so the church is the ark of the redeemed in the world. And here's a picture Ian's going to throw up of the Iona Abbey, where Corey and I were this summer. It's going to be up there any second. And uh, you can see up above the ceiling. Look at the ceiling of the Abbey. If you've ever seen a wooden boat, that would be a boat upside down as the roof. You see the ribs of the ship there. Um, St. Helen's Anglican Church in Vancouver is like that. There are many churches that have this type of architecture. And that's purposeful to because when you look up as a congregant, you see, I am in the womb of the ark of God. We, the church, are protected by God through the storms of life. That's, that's what this architecture depicts. Thank you, Ian. Churches face storms together. That's what we do. Um, there's no promise by Jesus that in following Him as a church that life is going to be easy or smooth sailing. Jesus never told anyone that, hey, follow me and you'll be wealthy and influential. Jesus promised to be present with us. And what does Jesus ask? What is being obedient? What is getting in the boat together look like? Like we're always talking about, and I think there's good sermons about getting out of the boat too, but we're always talking about getting out of the boat. What does it look like to be in the boat together? To obey Jesus together? Well, here's something. To obey? To have faith? As a church community, we as a people are called to have faith in Jesus. And sometimes... We equate faith, especially here in the West, with doctrines. Let's just face it, that's what we do sometimes. Sometimes churches get caught up in defending their doctrines and their nuances of Scripture rather than allowing those doctrines and nuances of Scripture to affect their lives. Are there basic doctrines that are really important to our faith? Yes, absolutely there are. Like Jesus is Lord. He died for me and for you. He rose, defeated death. He reigns. 
He's bringing His kingdom in full. Oh, those are some basic doctrines. That, that, that's the core stuff right there. But none of those things matter. I, I don't care... You don't care what I think. Um, Jesus doesn't care about your theological background or how well you can articulate different nuances of doctrine. He doesn't care about those things if you're not making an attempt to follow Him. There is no scripture that says, For God so loved the world that He sent theology so that everyone who has it right might not perish but have eternal life. Hear that coming from someone who's like got major student loans for theology classes, alright? So if anything I learned, it's I don't know anything and trust Jesus, okay? That's, you don't have to go in debt for that. I'm giving it to you. If, yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I know. Now we can be a church who learns a lot about Jesus but fails to be the church because we don't live it out. Or we can be a church that learns a little bit about Jesus and then practices what we learn and learns a little bit about Jesus and practices what we learn. And guess what? While you're practicing what you learn, you actually learn stuff on the job and it informs your theology. It informs how you process what you're learning about Jesus. It's wonderful. Think about this for those of you who are um, maybe have done a vocational class. Um, I was a, a diesel mechanic in the Coast Guard. I, didn't, I had classes I had to take. And if you've done any kind of work with your hands... Uh, you'll know that you don't just read a book about how to be a mechanic. You read a book, and then you practice under a mentor. You read a book, you practice under a mentor. I didn't like read a bunch of books and then go figure out how to, to rebuild an engine. That would be crazy. I wouldn't know what I was doing. You actually practice. You know, as a tutor at Parkview Elementary for the last several years, I, I'm just in awe of these men and women who come in and they're student teaching. They are investing properly in their minds at university, but then they are being absolutely humbled before these wonderful evil children. <laughs> no, I'm just I've got to write my teachers a letter. I was a brat when I was a kid, but I mean, it's just, it's just amazing what they're doing because they're practicing what they're learning in real life situations under the tutelage of great mentors. And I wish uh, Janelle Carney was here because I get to see her in action with her student teacher and she is wonderful. She's wonderful. So, that's how it can be with the church. So how are we doing, church? Are we praying for the lost and the hurting? Are we investing in people's lives through care and nurture and meeting needs? Are we making disciples? How are we making disciples? Let me ask you this. Are you seeking to be discipled? Are you being discipled? Have you sought that out? It's not just going to happen. I would argue that if you're not being discipled, if you're not growing, it will be very difficult for you to make disciples. You can't do something that you haven't gone through. I think this text for me, the way it's been going in my mind this week, is asking me, how's my attitude? Let me ask you, how's your attitude? Following Jesus faithfully as the church means, as Paul so said so well in Ephesians, it means striving for unity. That doesn't mean, oh yeah, just get along when there's people I like who think like me. It means striving for unity. It means putting the other person first. 
Do you realize the mission that we have? Like, how many years do we have on this planet? Most of us, what, between 70 and 90, probably right around there? We get, we, ha- we get to tell the world about Jesus, about His kingdom, about how to have new life, abundant life. What are we doing as the church when we're spending more time arguing about how we're not getting away, about how this person bugs us, about how that thing bugs us, and that's taking away energy from the mission? There are absolutely storms in the church. We're in a boat. Pretend we're in that upside down boat. There's hurting people all the time. There is death all the time and new life all the time and brokenness all the time. In fact, one of my, you know, I'm prayer walking the neighborhood and on the corner of Broadway and Holly, I just, I love it because on the left is Broadway Hall where... You know, like your guys' wedding reception was there, and I've gone to several wedding receptions there. And on the right is a funeral home. And I just think in my mind, here's an intersection of where a life begins and where a life goes on to somewhere else, where a life ends, where, where there's rejoicing and where there's mourning right across the street. And isn't that the church? Isn't that the life? That's what we do together. We're in the boat together. So there's death and life and brokenness. There's pettiness and pride. Darn right there is. And in the midst, in the boat with us, is Jesus. He's in control. He's capable. He's compassionate. We don't have to be anxious. We can let our guard down and love one another. That, I would argue, is obedience. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Okay, so this story has implications for the church, for this group of disciples going across the sea, being obedient to Jesus. I see that as us. Um... But the church is made up of people, isn't it? Of individual people. People who have placed their faith in Jesus as Savior and King. Faith is communal. It's it's not private. But just because it's not private doesn't mean it's not personal. It's a very different nuance, isn't it? Faith is communal and public. It's not private, but it is very personal. Because the church is made up of you and me as people who have put our weight, our faith in the living God, in Jesus, the Savior. What does having faith in Jesus mean? And like we discussed earlier, faith isn't only intellectual. Sometimes, oftentimes, it takes a few good storms for our faith to really take root. A good storm can prove our faith, or lack thereof, and it can improve our faith. Now, I opened this message with a sea story in which I, I, in which I had intellectual faith in the ship I was stationed on, in the shipmates that I was stationed with, It was all true. All those things I believed about that ship and its capabilities. But it was put to the test when I was in that storm. I was absolutely, truly afraid. All the book smart stuff went out the window. I didn't actually know how the ship would handle. I didn't actually know how my shipmates and I would work together to get us through this thing until we were in the storm. And not that I would ever want to go through that same experience again, 
But I will say, my faith in that, in my shipmates and in that ship was improved. And the next time we were in nasty things and hard situations, it was easier. Because I was tested. I want to ask you this to consider. We don't have time in a sermon to go through all of this and have discussion groups. Um, but I want to ask you to maybe carry it on in the dinner time or carry it on in your small group. Or carry it on in your quiet time when you go home. But ask yourself, what are the storms of life for you right now? For those of you who don't feel like you're having any storms, it's very nicely, but pastorally, I want to ask you, are you even in the boat? Because in this boat, in Lettered Streets, there, there's storms going on all the time. If, you, if you're looking for one, I'll, I'll point you in the right direction, or you can get involved in a storm. But I, I've, something tells me that that's not the case for almost all of you. Um, so let me ask you this. Is there a person in your life that you're finding it very difficult to love? That would be a real life storm. Is there a person in your life that you're finding it very difficult to love? What does loving an enemy look like? So here's the application. Ask Jesus. I know that sounds simple, but seriously, like spend a few moments with this, spend a half hour, spend 20 minutes with Jesus. Lay it before him, write the person's name on a piece of paper if that helps. Say, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to love in this situation, I am so mad. Lord, I need some things. I need creativity to know how to love this person. I need love that I really don't possess within my own heart. I need your help. Right? So that would be that would be one application. I'm sure most of us have one of those people in our lives, okay? And I don't want to just be negative. Like, is there a victory? Is there a victory you can talk about? Maybe you've been able to practice faith in such a way this past week or this past month that you were able to love somebody really well in a way that actually cost you something, in a way that you're like, I'm kind of proud of that. Like, I really felt Jesus working in me the way I was able to express love. Don't forget to just turn and thank Jesus for those situations because that's a way that faith is proved and improved as well. Jesus is in the boat with you. What does faith look like in your storm? What if your storm right now is a moral dilemma? And here's one that everyone kind of just shoves off to the side, but it's a real one for some people. It's tax season right now, isn't it? And there are all kinds of ways, especially the way that, you know, you can do TurboTax, you can fudge the numbers. You might feel in your heart, gosh, it's kind of tight. No one would know if I just massage this a little bit and I could get a little more back. Or not pay so much taxes because I'm fearful. I might not have enough. What would it look like to invite Jesus into that storm and say, I want to do the right thing. I need your grace. I need your power to be a person of integrity. What about the deep brokenness, brothers and sisters, in our sexual identity? Maybe your storm as an unmarried person is remaining celibate. Maybe your storm as an unmarried person is fighting the false narrative that you are somehow less of a person if you're not having physical intimacy with someone. And fellow married brothers and sisters, what if the storms we face 
our infidelity, whether it's online, or in the flesh, or in our daydreams? What would it look like to invite Jesus, not only into the calm, or to calm those powerful storms, but to help Him to love our spouses more, to love our kids more? To love our fellow brothers and sisters more. To actually have respect. To realize that that person that we are, are, are gazing at and lusting after is a son or a daughter of the living God. What would it mean to live with more respect and integrity for other people? Those are storms. Oh, come on now. Those are storms that we wrestle with, right? We need Jesus in our boat in those situations. Now, this is awesome because ultimately this story, as much as we talk about Peter and we talk about the disciples in the boat, don't forget that this story is all about Jesus. And that is very good news. Jesus is the hero in the story. And He's the great hero because He shows us that above all, not only is He powerful, He can walk on the water, but He's a God who saves. Of all the four Gospels, scholars say that Matthew, more than any of the others, uh, shows a foreshadowing of the church. Now Simon, this fisherman, starts following Jesus and Jesus changes his name name to Peter, which means rock. He says, you know, Peter, on you, on the rock, I'm going to build my church. Right? Now isn't it glorious that Peter, the rock, who asked Jesus to come out on the water, then sinks like a rock. I mean, the very founding father besides Jesus of our church fails and in this failure I see three wonderful realities first Peter models passionate love of Jesus I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair you say what you will about Peter but man Peter loved him some Jesus Jesus wasn't just an idea to Peter. Jesus wasn't a set of moral uh, imperatives to Peter. Jesus wasn't a genie that Peter could just go to and get stuff when he was feeling bad about himself. Peter loved Jesus. Jesus was life to Peter. Who is Jesus to you? The second wonderful reality I see in this episode is the reality of failure. Not that, not that failure is wonderful, but if the rock of the church failed with invisible sight of Jesus in the flesh, well, failure is something we better get used to because I can't even see Jesus. Right? And life is so often a series of failures. I was sharing uh, with a couple of you, actually, uh, last week, about how so often I go to bed at night after a day full of ministry, whether it's ministry in the church or in the community or to my family or to my friends, and I will sit there and I'll actually groan as I replay the day. And in an unhealthy way, I sometimes agonize about my failure. I could have said that better. I could have not said that at all. That would have been better. Uh, you know, I could have done more. I could have done things differently. There's, you know, there's always more. I just feel like oftentimes... I'm failing in the right direction. I regret my sins. I regret my impatience and my anger and my lust. 
And all of that on a normal day. What about the storms of life? What about uh, the times when you feel like you're failing? Like you're trying to follow Jesus, but there are so many distractions. Doesn't Jesus see the storm around me? Why isn't he doing something? Which brings me to the third wonderful reality of this episode. In fact, I would say that this is the point of the story. Jesus saves when we cry out to him. Notice that Peter recognizes his failure. How could you not recognize your failure when you're in a storm sinking in the water? Right. So he gets that he has failed. Do you get that you have failed? Like, do you ever feel like you're sinking? Like, maybe right now you're sinking in something that's a little too much for you to handle? Like, you're in a storm? Hear this good news. The gospel is not about getting it right. Yeah, 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 it's about grace, I know. But it's really about getting it right. No, it's, the gospel is not about getting it right. It's not about you and me walking on water. The gospel is about trusting in the God who walks on water and reaches out when you and I cry, Lord, save me! Let's practice. Lord, save me! Amen! You of little faith might be the words that Jesus says to us. But He only speaks the truth. I mean, let's face it, that's not news. But it seems to me that the God who says, you of little faith, is also the one who says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Mm. We are aware that we are sinking in many areas of our lives, God. And maybe we're not. And Holy Spirit, I pray for your ministry of conviction. If there is uh, someone who just needs that little nudge. But I, I, I <laughs> Lord, we know in so many areas we're sinking. And I pray that you would, you would swallow up that, that shame and that, that self-deprecation, God. The self-loathing. I know that that's not what you want. You're a God who loves a broken and contrite heart. You are the Lord who says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, here we are, Lord, crying out, Save us. And I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here this evening, Lord, that we would experience your saving, your, uh, the power of your spirit blowing through us, reminding us that we are adopted into your family, that we are rescued. That you love us, not based on our performance, but because you made us and you love us. And I pray that that might make all the difference in how we live and how we treat each other. Amen.